0: The Limerick Voice, the name you know, the voice you need. Hello and welcome to the Limerick Voice podcast. My name is Roshi Nisuluan, and I'm a news reporter with the Limerick Voice. First and foremost, I want to welcome you to the podcast and um, give you fair warning that this is the first pod I've done in about two years. So I'm a little bit rusty and I'm definitely very nervous. So bear with me. Um, it's a bit of a learning experience, but um, we're just gonna go with it. Um, I'm really just delighted to be hosting the, the episode this week and um, really happy to share with you the conversation I had with this week's guest, Mary Dundon Um. For those of you who don't know Mary, she was a political correspondent with the Irish Examiner for a number of years um, and she was also um, responsible for the creation of the BA and MA um, courses in journalism in the University of Limerick. So in many ways, um, the Limerick Voice wouldn't um, exist without Mary and um, I think I can say on behalf of everyone at The Voice, um, we thank Mary for her massive contribution to university life and to Irish journalism in general. Um, it was a really nice opportunity for me to have a conversation with someone who has just a wealth of um experience and knowledge um on journalism and it was also fascinating because she imparted so much wisdom um for a young journalists um and definitely I'll be using it in my future career and as I move through this journey um of discovery so um thanks Mary for that and I wish you every success now as you embark on your retirement um I really hope you all enjoy the conversation as much as that. I did and um, if you want to give us a follow on social media or drop us a message on your thoughts of the podcast and what you'd like to see in the future we'd absolutely love to hear from you Um, and I think on that note um, we'll just get started and get going with the pod. Mary, first and foremost, I'll welcome you to the Limerick Voice podcast. Um, It's fantastic to have you on um, and to talk to someone who has so much experience in journalism and can offer us um, some serious words of wisdom. That uh I think we'll need going forward in this mess world. Um well, hopefully, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. Um and, and yeah, for, for those of you who don't know Mary, Mary started off in teaching. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, as we discuss um her career, uh it, it came full circle. But she came, you came from a teaching background. What it, what inspired you to first become a journalist?
1: Well. I always wanted to be a journalist. Um, I actually wanted to study journalism after school, but the only place you could study journalism then was in uh, Ratmines College of Commerce in Dublin, which is now part of DIT, and they only took in 20 people in the whole country. So um, I applied for that, but I didn't get it. So um, I was very interested in politics uh, and history and all that. So what I did then was I went to UCG. I think they call it NUIG now. Yeah. and I I did a BA in history and politics and Irish and then I just became a teacher because that's what most people were doing and um, I enjoyed it I taught in Dublin in a big school called Volunteer Community School and I was in my 20s and I was having a great time um, but there was always this niggling thing at the back of my head that I wanted to do journalism so um, in 1987 when there was about 70,000 people going to America because there was no jobs in Ireland. Um, the school I was working in offered young people like myself uh, five years leave of absence without pay uh, if we wanted to go and try something else. And the main reason they did that was because there were so many young and unemployed teachers coming out who couldn't get jobs. So I said to myself, this is my chance to do it because they had just started a postgraduate course in journalism in DCU. And, uh, but to get into that, you needed money, first of all, because at the time, there was no free fees. It cost €6,000 uh, or pounds. I don't know what it was at the time, but I, <laughs> I, I knew I had to go somewhere to make money. And then I had to live in Dublin. So my poor mother nearly had a heart attack because I she thought I was giving up a good, pensionable job to do what she thought was she didn't know what journalism was anyway she wasn't too impressed anyway I can tell you so um, anyway what I did was I went to America for a year um, when there was about 70,000 people going to work illegally in America and I was going voluntarily anyway I went and uh, I had a great year and I worked in the Hamptons which is kind of in Long Island it's a very wealthy area where um, wealthy New Yorkers go on holidays and there's all these big mansions by the sea and lots of restaurants. So I worked there for a year as a journalist and a maid in a big house. I even had to wear a uniform. So anyway, um, I enjoyed it and I made a lot of money and I made enough money to come back and do the course. And then I had to persuade the people to let me in because they only took five, I was regarded as a mature student even though I was only about 27. So uh, what you had to do to get in was you had to have um, uh, stories published in a newspaper. So I spent about two or three months trying to get papers to publish stories and I got two published in the time at which was the Irish press which is gone now and it was a story you could write it now today on homelessness in Dublin and I remember interviewing um, Sister Stanislas Kennedy, I don't know if you ever heard of her, but she's a big campaigner for homelessness and uh, Father Peter McVerry. So I got those published and uh, that helped me get into the course. So I did that. And uh, I suppose the star in our class that year was Matt Cooper, who went on to do great things. And uh, we even knew then he was going to be a star because he was very um, go ahead. And. so I got a job then in the Kerryman newspaper. I was delighted to get a job because there's no jobs. And uh, I worked there and then they had another paper in our car called The Corkman. I worked there for about seven years uh, doing everything. And it's probably the best training ground you can get. I'd say to anyone who's going out now, if you can get a job in a local paper, you get the best training because you have to do everything. You know, you cover everything from the courts to, you know, Mrs. Murphy's, wedding anniversary to you know you see all you see all human life really and um the other big thing you learn is you learn how to talk to people um and i know that might sound basic but um i think at the moment uh so much is going on online that um particularly your generation you you don't get out of the office and they expect you to do all this cut and paste and just follow up stories on the internet and you won't get good stories that way the best way you get stories is going out talking to people and meeting people and um again that might t- sound basic but that's where you get stories i don't know if you saw from your you know your um your placement but um no no i I, I,
0: I think it's a uh... It's an interesting take on how the transition of journalism, and as you look now, that the changes mightn't be actually good to the industry as a whole, and that probably we have it a, a lot. Well, I'll tell you, I've had a lot easier than you had it. Uh, that was a very difficult transition, and you deserve props for it because uh, I I remember when I my mother was the same. My mom didn't want she wanted me to go to college, but she didn't want me to do journalism. But uh, I do I, I I do agree with you that I think as I see it now as a career, you do have to be able to connect with people and there is a I think that connection has been lost through the years through social media and um and maybe in some ways it's probably the death of 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 the niceties of being human um which is unfortunate but yeah you had a difficult trans- transition and did you think that at any time you being a woman had any influence that it made things harder for you or was
1: it No, um I know a lot of people say that and there is a lot of um machoism and you know in, in newsrooms. I mean I experienced it. But my I was probably lucky with the first boss I had, and you probably know who he is. Like you think by seeing him on television that he's not an easy man to work with, but I worked with uh Jared Culleran, who was the editor of The Star, and he used to be on Vincent Brown a lot. But um there was only three women in the newsroom, and what I liked about him was uh if you got a good story, you know he'd back you okay. but if you if you made a mistake, you'd know all about it as well. so he treated everyone the same and uh, you're asking me kind of about good stories um and where do you get them um the, One of the best stories I ever wrote was in uh, that newspaper, and I got it from a guy who gave me the accounts of a local radio station where um money had been um had basically been taken by people who were raising money for a lottery for the local radio station. So what they were doing is they were going around selling tickets, you know, lottery tickets, like you'd see with a local GAA club. And uh, instead of giving the money back to the radio station, they were keeping the money themselves. Now, I know this might sound very basic, but um, so basically what happened is how are you going to write that story? So the and again, I know you spent four years doing this, but you have to have a source on the record or documentary evidence. And uh, so I was lucky I got the documentary evidence. Somebody leaked it to me and it showed they were the accounts of the radio station. that something I think it was something like 300,000. It was an awful lot of money back in 1994 from the lottery had been taken by two people. Now, I'm not even saying where this was for obvious reasons. And um, so how was I going to write that story? And uh, so we're going back to Machuism in the newsroom. So I showed this to Gerald Colleran, and he said that the only way we can write this is if we get a chartered accountant to verify that these are the actual accounts and that they're correct. So he gave me the money, which was a lot of money. He hired a chartered accountant to check that they were right. And uh, so they were right. And then the other thing that made it very interesting was the man who was the chairman of this local radio station, was the local parish priest. So that wasn't very easy. Now, I have to say, this man had nothing to do with the money. He he had absolutely nothing to do with the money disappearing. But he was involved in the cover-up. So it didn't get out. It wouldn't have got out except that this man leaked me the accounts. So it was probably one of the most difficult interviews I had to do because I had to get an interview with him for balance to see what he thought about it. And I'd say I made five attempts to interview him. I eventually interviewed him. And it was very intimidating because I don't know anyone that knows small towns in Ireland, the biggest house is the parish priest's house. It's this big house beside the, <coughs> the church with one man living in it. And in 1994, the church still had an awful lot of power in Ireland. And um, so I remember being very nervous going into him. I'd have five questions ready. And I just, Jared Hollering kept saying, just keep asking him the five questions. Don't let him deviate and I, I had to record it. I had to tell him I was recording it. And there was no mobile phones then. You couldn't record on your phone. So he was it was very difficult. And uh but he eventually admitted that the money had gone missing. Um, he said they were trying to find out where the money went and you know that the people on the committee had nothing to do with it and they didn't. And um, so we wrote the story. And I mean, I was absolutely sweating the morning it came out because I said, if this is wrong, like I'm my career is gone and we could be sued and all this. But it was right, and every paper in the country took up on it. And Primetime came down and did an interview uh, with me and did a story on it. And then it led to a guard investigation into the money going missing. But I learned an awful lot from that story. I just learned that. You had to get everything right like if you had a source like what you're learning you either had to have a person saying it on the record or you had to have documentary evidence and you had to give the other side a right reply yeah. so that's kind of where i started and uh um the other thing i learned from local papers is that uh you need to talk to people you know people you need to be out there you know meeting people in restaurants or pubs or you know I mean I shouldn't say that you get the best stories in pubs but I probably got some of my best stories in pubs. The problem is you have to remember to write them down because you forget them the next day you know and you have to be careful with people too because if they saw you were the paper the person from the paper you could lose a lot of friends because they'd say oh don't talk to her now she anything you say to her will end up in the paper. So as you're all going out that's what I'd advise you is you know you need to keep your friends and if you do hear a good story try and not implicate your friends because you lose friends you know and there are stories Mm. everywhere but like I think the big challenge you all have going out is just persuading the people you work for to let you out to actually get stories because all you're doing Mm. otherwise is surfing the net and taking Mm. a story from someone else's house would you kind of believe in some ways that investigative journalism is dead then I don't think it's dead but I think it's really um uh it's under threat because the major media organisations in Ireland don't give money to it. The only people doing good investigative stories are uh, is the RTE, Prime Time. Prime Time, yeah, 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 and they do they,
0: fantastic stories. In fairness to them, you know, but
1: yeah, but they they spend. Um, uh, I had the 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 man who organises that down. He gave a seminar um, about five years ago to the students, and he said sometimes they spend a year on the story. They did a really good story on. Um, uh, prostitution in Ireland and how women are moved around and uh, you know they had to monitor the whole thing for a year yeah. before they were able to write the story so um, to answer your question I do unfortunately think that it's under serious threat not only in Ireland but internationally because um, this whole social media thing is is putting pressure on media organizations to be first with a story you know, and they just had the first few lines in it, but they rarely go back through the backstory on it. The only other organisations doing it was one in um, in Germany, and there's another one in um, Washington D.C. And they were the ones who broke that story on the Panama Papers. Do you remember that one? It was all about. Um, it was about two years ago. They spent years investigating it. It was all about um, uh, wealthy people who had their money hidden away you know in offshore accounts okay and it, it listed them and it gave the names of them and everything but it took two years to do that and then they had kind of um partnerships with media organizations around the, the world who publish it at the same time the one in Ireland was the Irish Times and the New York Times so they all got the story out nationally or internationally at the same time yeah but just to answer your question it's it's difficult for people like you going out because um you know they're not putting the money or the resources into it which no. is hard
0: and and then at the same time you see fantastic stories of irish um investigative journalism like mark Tyke on the fai scandal with john delaney yeah. that was uh, i was absolutely loved that book and
1: to, to read that yeah there is hope for us but it's just well, no, there is and i mean probably like the sunday papers have more time and money to put into it you know and i suppose like the fai story they those journalists worked on that a lot in their own time as well you know and it took them it took them months to be able to write it you know just if someone comes to your story you can't write it like you've done a whole <laughs> module you love yeah, yeah. you know and um, there was this i remember this old journalist um i don't know if i told you when i was teaching he came to um work with us in the and we were asking him what his you know advice was and he just said to us that uh you don't take anything you know, as as it is, he said, what was the phrase he had? If your mother tells you she loves you, check it out. <laughs> mother tells you she loves you, check well, it I out. Well, I think that is the, the best thing I've heard. In yeah. About because most mothers love their children. Like, yeah. it's a taken. But he was saying, don't take anything for granted, you know.
0: So don't so, take it on face value, question everything.
1: Yeah, don't take it on face value just because they say it. And there's a huge problem now with social media, with all of that, no. you know, so... You just have to check everything, and you know, with such a, a a waft of misinformation and disinformation, there's more a challenge for your generation on that, you know.
0: I know, and then maybe that the, I know that there's kind of fact-checking news organisations now that have kind of sprung up. Yeah, I can't remember his name. Uh, he, he's well, storyful.
1: Talking. Storyful is one. Storyful. That's that's the one. Yeah. He, Mark
0: Little, yeah. Mark Little, yes, it's yeah. fascinating ideas, and it's actually it's great to see in some cases that it's Irish people, um, oh, yeah. and yeah, leading leading uh, the way in that regard because a lot of it that you see kind of fake news, obviously it's very very uh, prominent here, but we saw it in the Trump administration, we see yeah. it. You know, that Americanization of Irish news um, has, has happened too. Um, and that kind of, that, that really answer, I was going to ask you loads about <laughs> um, uh, what, what, what your thoughts are, were, were of uh, journalism and, and the, the change uh, because of media. But uh, when you were, um, you were also um, really, really involved with or heavily involved with um, Women in Media Conference, what, what brought you um, brought you to that and how did you get started?
1: Well, um, I, I was just asked to do it, really. Um, um, thats I mean, I didn't set out. Um, uh, Miriam O'Callaghan and RT was involved in it, and she did it the first year. And then she asked me would I chair the political forum because I had worked as a political journalist for years. So I became involved in that. But that's only on once a year. I wouldn't say it's um, its a big thing in my life. I just chair it. But probably the biggest and the part that I enjoyed most was working as a political correspondent with the Examiner for about eight years. And uh, that gave me a chance like, to cover a lot of big stories, kind of elections. And um, um, probably the two biggest things I saw you wanted to ask me about were probably the best or the big stories that I covered. <laughs> one of them would have been, you know, every year that they send the Irish media out to Washington when the the T-shirt goes over to give a bowl of shamrock to the president. <laughs> uh, the best bowl of shamrock anyway. But um, but the, the two contrasting ones that I covered was one in 1999, which was after the signing of the Good Friday Agreement in 1998. And Bill Clinton was very instrumental in all of that. And uh, he actually gave a passport to Gerry Adams to go to America before that. It was very controversial. Um, but when they held the... Sort of the uh the party in the in the White House that night, um like Jerry Adams was like a film star. They they were all around him, and uh, all the very wealthy American you know ladies thought he was great, and you know he was like almost like a star. They were all around him, and they had a big um, marquee out the back with Phil Coulter playing music. Like it was just you could see the power that the Irish had in America, and I suppose it was a celebration of the Good Friday Agreement getting over the line, but just shows you how fast things change. Um, and Clinton was a Democrat, you know, um, and they're always more favourable to the Irish. But uh, in 2005, the next time I went, it was um, George W. Bush was in the White House and they're Republicans and they wouldn't be as, um, you know, sort of supportive of the Irish. But um, when I went that time, Jerry Adams wasn't invited anywhere. And... Um, but the main reason was that um, uh, there had been a murder in um, in uh, Northern Ireland uh, about two weeks before, before uh, Patrick's Day. And uh, this man called Robert McCarty was married, murdered by the IRA outside a pub in Belfast. And his three sisters um, went to Washington with the support of Bertie Ahern and Ted Kennedy, who was alive at the time. He's President Kennedy's uh, brother, you know. Was a senator and you just saw the big change in the political mode that jerry adams went from being like the main attraction and the star uh, in 1999 after the signing of the good friday agreement when he wasn't invited anywhere because um you know the powers that be in washington felt that that he hadn't um put pressure on the ira to own up to murdering this man and finding out who were the murderers so he was totally um blacklisted from every um, event and instead uh, these three sisters of Robert McCartney were invited to the White House to meet President Bush and to the Irish Embassy afterwards. But the other big contrast then that I saw was the Republicans don't really like the Irish so we we were always invited in to see the Taoiseach given the bowl of shamrock to the President and uh, then there'd usually be a, like a reception or something afterwards for the journalists But this time we were just invited into the room and we were told not to even sit down in the chair and Bertie gave President Bush the bowl and then we were kicked out and told to wait in this room until Bertie would come out and tell us what was said. So it was a huge contrast between the way the Democrats, uh, supported the Irish and the way the Republicans didn't. And they were probably two, I suppose the two very eventful things that I covered, you know, it was very interesting to see that then you'd always cover like elections as well. And you'd get to know a lot of politicians. And again, just from your point of view, with journalists going out, I would always say if you can get a chance to cover elections and you get to know an awful lot of politicians and you get their mobile phone numbers, which are very important. They will give you the numbers because they need they need you to get elected.
0: I I know as well, you did PR um, for the the Limerick City and County Council. So and during the gangland gangland times as well, which I'd say was difficult at the best of time. Yeah, but what was your
1: experience there? Well, it wasn't a pretty PR job, you know, it wasn't like trying to sell Guinness or something, but uh, um, I did it because, um, well, uh, you know, some people say you either do journalism or PR and uh, that they're two different things, but... um, I suppose the one in Limerick was a bit different. It was kind of like, um, it was a bit of a public service in it, but um, it was difficult. It was the time when they were burning children in the back of cars and they shot that um, uh, rugby player, Shane Gagan, which was terrible. I don't know if you remember that, but he was mm-hmm. shot uh, mistakenly. And up that was a real game changer because up to that, the kind of gangs had been killing each other, you know. Mm-hmm. and while it was awful, people weren't really taking any notice but then uh, when it crossed over the line and it was just an ordinary person, it really made the government sit up and, um, you know, realize the seriousness of what was going on in Limerick. Um, the other case before that was, you may not have remembered, but there was two little children. They were sitting in the back of a car uh, up in myross and this guy had asked his mother to drive him to the court. And uh, the mother said, you know, she would something to do, but they threw in a petrol bomb into the back of the car and the two little kids were very badly scarred. And um, um, that really focused the mind on Limerick. And they, at the time, the government, um, you know, um, gave or they said they'd give a lot of money to the regeneration of Limerick. And they did give some money, you know, but then the recession came and thing kind of collapsed and some money... Was given say to you know building new houses and building schools, you know um but then the whole thing dried up, but I mean, I suppose my biggest difficulty was with um, you know the office I worked at because they used to keep saying to me like why are they putting mergers on page one? why can't they put them in the bottom of page two? Why don't they put nice news on page one? So I was trying to explain to them that uh, like a merger is a big story, and you can't stop them putting the merger on page one yeah. Because that's the news, and you can't you know um try and control the media. i mean all all we were doing was trying to develop you know other positive stories about Limerick, and I'd say probably the best one we did was um again, you're too young, but the uh, the Munster rugby team were very um successful at that time, and they won their first um Heineken Cup in two thousand and six, and before that match. Uh, we had an idea that we would put a big screen in O'Connell Street so that the people could come out and and watch the match on the screen, you know. And um, just out of luck, really, at the time, uh, Sky Sport had contacted me to see (coughs) was there anything that they could do from Limerick, you know, like interviews of people. So I told them that we had this big screen and that they could, if they had a camera, they could, you know, do a a shot of the people on the street in Limerick uh, watching the match. And it was very effective. What they did was they they, um, beamed uh, a shot of people in Limerick, you know, watching the match into Cardiff Stadium just before um, uh, Ronan O'Gara went to take a penalty shot. And he said afterwards that he was looking up, he was very nervous and he suddenly saw, you know, all these people on the streets in Limerick supporting him. So yeah. that would have been probably one of the, the good things we did. And then, um, you know, the media came to Limerick then to, to you know, um report on the homecoming and all that. And they would have used our office. But, you know, then we had about, I'd say, five days of good publicity on that. And then there was another merger. I know. And, I know. you know, my boss at the time was saying, like, like, why does this have to happen? I said, but that's just life. It happens.
0: Yeah, but it's it's also also
1: an interesting thing about the news that you have a responsibility
0: that I know it's all good and well for consumerism and everything else to happen. But we as journalists have responsibility to show the true sides of life. And unfortunately, the good, the bad and the awful. And although the bad press usually gets more more, more coverage than the good press, it's even something I, I have in my own career now at the moment where, you know, I work for a company and you're always trying to get, you know, newsy points to sell do you know what I mean yeah and I'm always thinking about oh well if we did this could that work and this that and the other and now I I, and then I always come back to that journalism that we're taught that the news has a specific place in society and it's there to inform and to educate rather than to be used in in other in other kind of um you know for for people to buy stuff or to be
1: encouraged or oh I know and the main thing is to reflect life as it's going on. And I suppose to hold power to account is probably the main thing, definitely. you know? And, um, but I suppose we need to watch ourselves too because who's holding us to account? Oh, you yeah. know, we, definitely, we definitely do have a role. And that I would think would have been the main thing that motivated me is to, to hold power to account because there is such corruption. But I mean, it's so difficult to do that. You only get breaks if somebody gives you like a leak on something or um you know you get a source who'll tell you i mean those stories about that poor guard the whistleblower like what that man went through was horrendous you know and uh, so like the only way journalists get a break and being able to hold power to account is if something like that happens or if they get you know a tip off or something like that
0: but even that goes back to what you were saying earlier that you won't get those tip outs tip offs or excuse me without yeah. being out there and without being visible and without being talking to people because by sitting in an office and all right, right it'd be great to sit in a newsroom you're not going to you're yeah. not going to get to know people and to be fair we're very
1: well networked in Ireland you always know someone or someone or you that do you know.
0: and but someone think-
1: won't, someone won't give you information unless they have a handle on you and they think that they can trust you with the information yeah. because sometimes by giving you information they're putting them their own neck on the line and they're trusting that you will won't reveal the source yeah which is a big thing you know i mean a man back in the 1960s went to jail not to reveal a source his name was kevin o'kelly he was a journalist with rte and he did an interview with the head guy in the ira and uh, you know they wanted him to tell him how they got him and where he was living and all this kind of thing and he wouldn't and he actually went to jail for contempt of court so it's very serious to protect your sources you know and sometimes we forget uh, what I think is sad at the moment is with all this social media and I know we all need to learn how it works you know and how to operate it and Instagram and all this and how I'm getting it out but sometimes we get preoccupied with the the technology and how to do it rather than what we're saying Do you know what I mean I understand yeah and the message you're yeah. actually carrying as well as is, is uh... yeah like the message is more important than how you're doing it yeah, no, you know whether you're doing it on instagram or whether you're doing it on twitter or whether you're doing it wherever like it's what you're saying rather than how you're saying it it's yeah. still the same principle it's just that you've got more means of saying it now yeah i, I think that, yeah.
0: that is it. Yeah. Do you know what yeah. i'm saying yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more, like definitely. Um, and, and you just mentioned the word corruption. And uh, I, I thought that might be interesting to, to kind of lead to, to this question in that uh, you did a lot of research about the relationship between politicians and journalists. And would one of the reasons uh, kind of uncovering corruption and stuff like that, What what did your research find out? What were you inspired by to
1: look into this in the first place? Well, the main reason I did it really was because um, as, because I worked with, as a political correspondent. We were always dependent on politicians to get stories. But they needed us, too, to get their name out in the media. Now, this was before the whole social media thing had come up and Twitter and all that. And, and when I was covering politics, you, we worked for a paper and you, there was only two chances you had of writing stories. But with the whole arrival of social media, um, politicians didn't need us anymore to get their name out there if they had a social if they had a facebook account or twitter they could talk directly to the people as they'd say their people so, <laughs> their people yeah so what i did was um i was interested to see had the arrival of facebook and twitter had they had it stopped politicians uh, engaging with journalists because they didn't need us anymore okay you know what okay. i mean So what I did was uh, I got a chance to go to Italy for a year and my Italian is terrible. So I I was uh, dependent on um, uh, Google Translate, but I found uh, uh, six editors of newspapers who spoke English, which was great, and uh, six politicians from different political parties who spoke English. And I did a survey with them to see uh, how many of them. Uh, Now, this is the politicians went straight to social media to contact the people, and how many still use the traditional um, media, you know, like television and newspapers and all that, and journalists. And it was actually, uh, I, I thought it would be like 50%, but it wasn't. It was only about 25%, because most of them said to me that they still felt that if they had their story in a newspaper or on television or in the radio, they reached more people and it had more impact mm-hmm. and that it also uh, had more credibility. than, like say a lot of older people at the time, now I'm going back. When did I do this? This was 2016. Um, a lot of people initially just didn't, didn't have uh, Facebook accounts or Twitter accounts except the young people. So they found that in order to, re- to reach a wider audience, they still needed to talk to journalists. So that kind of symbiotic relationship where we needed them for information and they needed us to get the message out still existed. But I thought it wouldn't. I thought that more of them would be off to do their own thing. thing.
0: It's a very interesting fact as well, because we see here in Ireland, the, this kind of argument the, in particularly, we saw the reemergence of Sinn Féin in the last election. And I wonder, is their use of social media and Twitter and, you know, they're very, very, they have really engaged kind of a younger generation in Ireland. And it's now what would what would your thoughts be on that, that maybe does it work in some cases?
1: No, I think they've been very slick with it. Yeah. And they're very good. And I think the results of the last election really showed it because, yeah. um, like most of those people who were elected, their campaigns were on social media. Yeah. And some of them were so surprised they got elected themselves. They were, they <laughs> were, though. I remember being at a count and this fellow said to me, Have I been elected? I said, You have, yeah. And the poor fellow had not even, even had a speech ready, you know? And yeah. I'd say next time they'll get more elected because they've been very slick with the use of social media and, yeah particularly targeting your generation, um, who are on social media all the time. And if you even saw the they had their um, annual general meeting about two months ago and they all get time on RTE to usually what they do is the leader gives a speech and she's talking to the audience. Well, what Mary Lou MacDonald did this time, she didn't do that at all. She just used her time to kind of talk to people like, say, walking around the park. And then she got her four main people who were talking on housing, um, uh, health, um, social affairs and that. She got them to talk about, you know, what should be done to help the health crisis, whatever. But they were they were talking over pictures. They like health now. You just heard their voice talking over pictures of the overcrowding in A&E and of the, the queues for the pandemic, you know, the, the, the vaccination and all that. So it was really slickly done. They used images of the poor health service, the poor housing service, and the, the, the um, spokespeople uh, talking over it. And then they interviewed someone who was waiting for a house for 10 years or someone who was on a trolley for five days in A&E. They did the case studies of these people. And that was a really slick, whoever did that for them, that was oh, really they have. Crazy. They
0: definitely have uh, some serious marketing or PR people that are doing yeah. that know their, yeah. what they're doing. Um. Yeah. And this is actually kind of funny to bring up, uh, Sinn Féin It's made me think of your time in the West Wing and how, uh that you were saying. Well, but I, the- I was.
1: I, I wouldn't say my time in the West Wing. I was only there for an hour. <laughs> well, an hour. You're an hour more than me, Barry. That's a fact. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Because uh,
0: I I saw recently um one of the ads Sinn Fein have in America for uh, uh you know kind of garnering um you know national support whether international support and it's funny how you look back at Gerry Adams what you know how many years ago and they're still doing it now um and I wonder what it'd be like now to go into a newsroom um when when someone's giving away a shamrock and see what the relationship would be um yeah yeah
1: yeah. No, it's it's um I mean I, I just think you've a very exciting time ahead of you, your class. It's it's a different world. And but the same things I'd say to you is your your most precious thing is a context book mm-hmm. and developing context and don't get too hung up on all the different ways you get the message out. I mean you all know how to use Twitter and how to like the other thing you have is you can you can um, you can make a documentary on your phone. Mm which is really good but like it's what are you going to do with all that technology yeah that's important and that's why you only only you can decide what area of journalism you want to go into but I mean use the technology and there's a journalist down in um uh West Kerry called Michal or Sean McEntee and he was the first journalist to ever Uh, Do a a news package on on an iPhone six, and you always see him on television. He does these; they're kind of features, but he does good documentaries as well. And he's a real example of how you can just get out there and do your own packages with technology. So it's it's to your advantage. And even if you're working in a news organisation where you have to be stuck in all day, you still have your iPhone. You can go out and you can edit it, and you can buy really, um, you know, fairly cheap editing equipment to do it. Um, if you go into the, um, the seminar series, there was a man I used to bring in called Raphael Rocca. He came in every year. He did one last year the seminar, and he gave the students tips on what equipment to buy to set yourself up as a kind of an independent contractor to, um, to go and do your own stories. And what he did when he left UL was he did that and now he runs the Sporting Limerick uh, website and he, he um, I think some of the students are working for him, but with kind of a minimum um, investment, he was able to set up this website. Now he got some funding in the beginning, but what he does is he goes out and he has a group of journalists working with him and he covers all of the Sunday club matches and county matches that the big organisations don't do, and he 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 streams them live on his website. Okay. And uh, you know what I'm saying is the technology can also help you to uh, work out your own niche. But if you go into the UL seminar series and just put in Raphael Roca, the last one he did, he kind of uh, he just gave a, a list of things you can buy to help you set yourself up as an independent contractor. But I mean I mean you could be working for a media organisation, but you can go and do your own stuff. Yeah, i a doing of freelance work. Yeah, freelance. And we had we had a fantastic lecture Catherine gave us, and um, God, it's
0: only about two or three weeks ago, um, about freelancing, and all of us, I'll tell you, we were, our ears, and eyes were open. We could couldn't wait because it's something we've all probably thought about, and mulled over in our heads oh should we do it and she gave a very good case as why it's so feasible now to be
1: freelance
0: um and that is something definitely i'll probably look into in the future myself but for your plans for the
1: future what are you going to do with your imminent retirement well i'm actually retired since the end of august so um there's two things i want to do really is uh um, I'm taking it easy at the moment and I'd love to be able to travel off to the Caribbean if uh, if I could get out of the country. But uh, since I'm stuck here um, uh, I have one or two ideas for documentaries that I want to do. So um, Matt Kelly who comes in and will be doing the TV with you. Um, I'm going to go and do a course with him because I need to upskill my uh, TV documentary skills. So I'm going to do that after Christmas. And then if we ever get out of here, I'm going to go and do <laughs> uh, two of those. So um, and there are things I just want to do myself that I'm interested in. I'm also going to have a life because uh, my partner is retired and he doesn't want me to work anymore. But uh, uh, if we can travel, I, they're the two things I'd like to do. I'd like to do a lot of traveling. And um, but that doesn't look um, Likely too soon, but um, but maybe. you will you'll get it's your you'll get
0: your feet on a Ryan airplane or an
1: Airline. Oh, I will, and I mean, um, a lot of people when they retire, they think that's the end of their life, but I just see it as another phase of doing something different. You know, I've had four different jobs in my life, so um, and successfully had four like, jobs. Oh yes, I know. I enjoyed it. Yeah, and uh, so that's what I want to do, and um. Uh, I'm at the moment clearing out my office in UL. Uh, hopefully, I'll have it cleared by the Christmas, because we had to keep every uh, document uh, in paper, and uh, so I'm filling big shredding bags at the moment. So, uh, but no, I really enjoyed my time there, and I enjoyed the teaching. And I suppose the big difference between teaching in secondary schools and teaching in third level was that you had a captive audience. Like when in secondary school, you had to be good at crowd control if they didn't want to listen to you. You know and uh, no disciplinary problems in secondary. That was the thing I enjoyed about it because it was a captive audience and you all wanted to learn and it was small groups. I think what helps a lot are the small numbers in journalism. You're not in a big class of 300, you know, and you have your own newsroom and all that, and you can do your own editing and all that.
0: I want to thank Mary for joining us on the Limerick Voice podcast this week. And also I just want to wish her every happiness um, in her retirement. We'll be back again uh, next week with another episode. Um, So thanks for tuning in. And yeah, have a great week, folks. And we'll see you soon.